0: Fast forward productions. The women are speaking.
1: Hi, everyone. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. It is absolutely vital for survivors in our communities to have the right to bodily autonomy respected and honored and upheld by the law and the Constitution. As we continue to move forward to work to dismantle rape culture and violence in our communities, it is absolutely vital that we support and reinforce and strengthen any protections that we have for bodily autonomy in this country. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we share our stories of survival and recovery and the true nature of wisdom and grit. I'm Kelsey Harper, I'm a survivor and a clinical psychologist. Welcome to our community of radical survivors. Here we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor. Today, I'm sharing an interview I did with Kristen, who is a survivor and an advocate and an educator that supports people on college campuses around seeking justice and safety, seeking recovery from things that have happened, and trying to improve the circumstances of sexual violence that occur on college campuses and make sure that colleges are more effectively responding to this and creating more safety for people on campus. Today, you're going to hear her personal story about what happened to her and how through her recovery, she learned some important tools that she could use to help others as well. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much for being here today.
0: Hi, Kelsey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here.
1: I am excited too. I think this is going to be a very important conversation to share with everybody. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. I'd love to. Thank you. So again, my name is Kristen Hogan, and I am a mental health advocate as well as an advocate for survivors of sexual and domestic violence. I've dedicated, I would say about the last eight or nine years of my life to both of these causes and I just, I just love being out in the community, providing education and resources to survivors and really people that have faced really hard, hard traumatic situations. And on top of that, I'm in the process of starting my own platform called Good, Strong, Brave. And its focus is to help young women feel empowered that have faced hard issues like eating disorders or violence or suicidal thoughts. And it's just, something I'm really, really passionate about, and I'm excited to continue to hit the ground running. I would say my most proud title, though, is I'm a mother of a three-year-old boy, and I have a little girl on the way. I'm happily married, and I have a wonderful black lab named Polly, who I just adore. Uh (laughs) Yes, yes, she's the light of my life. I love her. (laughs) Polly!
1: Yeah so we are definitely a very animal friendly podcast here. I actually have my cat Timmy lying out over here just stretched enjoying the day and Neville my dog sitting right behind me (laughs) offering their feedback.
0: Oh if I knew this was an animal party I would have brought Polly here to the office
1: (laughs) of me. Well maybe next time definitely. Yeah
0: next time next time for sure.
1: Well so you know I'm so excited to dive into all of this you know For today, we were going to talk a little bit about your story of recovery and how it led you to this place of launching into advocacy and such. And so can you share more about your recovery story with us?
0: Sure. I'd be happy to. I think before I dive into my story, I think it's really important to understand why I choose to tell my story. I think storytelling is so, so important. It not only builds community, but it just allows me to build strength in myself and find my own healing. And it's something that I have chosen to do for the last five years in just a variety of different settings. And it continues to be something that is just a gift for myself as well as the community and other survivors. So, so that's why I choose to tell my story. I'll just get right into it. So I was a student at the University of Oklahoma. I was 19. And I unfortunately was sexually assaulted by my boyfriend at the time. And it unfortunately happened twice. And it's it's interesting. I think it's important to preface that I'm from the South, but I grew up in a home where We didn't really talk about sex or relationships, the do's and don'ts, things that are okay, things that are not okay in relationships. My parents just really shied away from those tough conversations. And I would consider myself at that time a pretty naive and trusting person. And so I went into college not really having an education about these type of topics. And I just got linked up with a really bad guy. I just I remember going to it was a fraternity party, unfortunately, on campus. And in college, I was always, I'm a very small person. So I was always mindful about how much I drank, who made my drink, where my drink came from. I, I just considered myself really savvy and smart in that way. But this one night in particular, I was with my boyfriend at his fraternity house. He was actually the president of the fraternity house. And I just remember being in this large room and there were a bunch of other guys and girls in there drinking and doing shots. And I remember my boyfriend handing me a shot and I took the shot because my boyfriend gave it to me and I hadn't had anything else to drink. So I I had a great dinner. So I knew I had food in my stomach. And within just a couple of minutes, I started feeling very strange. It felt like I was almost on a different planet and things started to get really fuzzy and black. And so I turned to my boyfriend and said, you know, I'm not really feeling good. Can we just go back to your room or can you take me home? And the next thing I know, he has lifted me up and is carrying me over his shoulder down the hallway. And the next thing I remember is waking up in the middle of the night, like two or three in the morning, in the middle of his floor with all my clothes off and just in tremendous, tremendous amount of pain in my Southern areas And I didn't know what happened to me at the time because I was, I didn't know at the time I'd been drugged, but now I know I, I definitely been drugged, but I was coming to, from this situation. I couldn't find my boyfriend. I couldn't find my clothes. I just remember gathering whatever clothes of his I could find. I put them on. I ran out of the fraternity house and ran back to my housing complex. It's strange because when I look back on it, I just kind of, I really pushed down this situation, I didn't tell my parents for a number of years. I didn't tell any of my friends. I didn't tell any teachers or faculty members. It was just something that I held inside. I think the other important thing to note is that, and this all comes back to education about sexual assault, but at the time, I didn't know what sexual assault really was. I know that may sound silly to some of your listeners, but I always thought sexual assault was something kind of like what used to be depicted in the movies where like this big burly man and like all black with a hood and a knife hiding in an alley who just kind of had his way with you. But in reality, sexual assault can happen by somebody that you know, and it's actually more common to be by somebody that you know, because there's that whole trust factor there. And so because I had this lack of education, I just had zero awareness that what had happened to me was actually sexual assault. I had zero idea as to what the replications were going to be on my life, both short-term and long-term, for the next several years. Unfortunately, a very similar event happened just a few months later. Different place, different location, but very similar event as far as my boyfriend handed me, I think it was a margarita. I drank the margarita. I felt strange. I told him I felt strange, and we went back to his place, and I remember him on top of me forcing himself inside of me, and I was screaming, no, I don't want this. We've talked about this, and the next day when I woke up, he had told me that we had had sex, and it was something that I had wanted and that I had instigated, but it was definitely something that I I still have more memory from that incident than from the first one, but Again, after this incident, I didn't tell any friends. I didn't tell family. I didn't tell any faculty or staff. I just, I don't know why I I can't. That's one part of my story. I can't really explain why. I just, it's just how I knew how to handle it at the time. You know, unfortunately, all that trauma reared its ugly head later on down in life.
1: You know, what comes to my mind is just like my heart just aching so much for little college you of being in this situation of having no idea what the risks are and what's going on. And, and it's hard because we have this world where we simultaneously depict that the only kind of sexual assault that either qualifies as sexual assault or one where we're not going to blame the victim is the burly man in the bushes with the knife, right? And at the same time, there's also this substantial amount of pressure we put on women, especially going into college to prevent these things from happening. And here it is, it's, it's happening in your relationship. Like this isn't something that we prepare for as people of like, you need to trust nobody, you know, like we expect that we can trust people that we have close relationships with to be safe with us. And I think about most people, especially in situations in college, keep things very, very private, whether that's on purpose or they're not sure why, but it's, I think there's something very inherent to sexual trauma. That creates a lot of shame and isolation naturally around it, especially when we haven't really been given the language to use to describe it and describe what happened to us. And we can be like something wrong happened, but I'm not sure what it is or what's going on. And so it leaves us stranded without really knowing what to do.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I think for me, it was really challenging, again, because I didn't have that educational foundation from my family. And then I went into this fun, but also crazy college time with drinking. And I mean, I was a student at the University of Oklahoma in the early 2000s, and it was a much, much different world than it is now. And there was no talk about Sex or sexual assault or date rape drugs. It was just, I mean, all that stuff happened, not as much as it does now, but it was something that was not really ever, ever talked about. And I remember having a conversation with one of my friends because I told her I wanted to break up with this terrible dude. And I started to cry. And I told her that we had had sex, but the way that I told her made her think that it was consensual. I just like, I didn't know how to articulate that something really, really, really bad had happened to me. And so it was just really, really a challenging time. And then the years that transpired after that were just really, really hard. I mean, I started developing a lot of educational challenges at school. I mean, I was a 4.0 student all the way through my freshman and sophomore year. And it became really hard for me to go to class, really hard to focus. I was having nightmares. I mean, I would walk to campus to the library sometimes a little bit later at night. And I would just be so nervous about who was following me. Was my boyfriend stalking me? Was he gonna show up somewhere and like and do something to me again? I mean, I didn't have any support because I didn't, and, and part of that is my fault because I didn't I didn't have the knowledge that I needed to talk about it and the importance of talking about it. So I I went through a lot. And then after graduation, I actually went through a period where I became suicidal. I didn't get to the point where I tried to take my life, but I definitely had suicidal ideation. There was just one night I had a really, really bad night. And I texted my parents that I was, you know, I was going to take my life that night. And they called, I was living in Florida at the time and they called the local police and and the police came and picked me up and I had to go to a local psychiatric ward where I was held for two or three days until I was deemed not a harm to myself, you know? And so I, I went through all of these challenges. You know, I didn't really understand that it all kind of came from this one incident, plus some childhood trauma and stuff, but definitely sexual trauma has such, you know, short-term and long-term impact and can for for years if it's not properly addressed.
1: Absolutely. I think that's something that we're seeing consistently. The statistics coming out, you know, all the stories that I'm hearing are for people, it's sometimes decades that this is impacting their life. You know, I want to come back to something you said, because it was interesting, some of the language that you used around it, like you didn't have any support. And then you said, it, it, I guess it was my fault. And then you turn and it sounded like you challenged a little bit of the self-blame and kind of went, well, I didn't have the education. In a sense that like, it, I think when we broaden our focus a little bit to communities that have responsibility here, like we have communities that are encouraging and reinforcing and supporting and enabling perpetrators and training them in different ways. There's different things in our culture and in our communities that really shape perpetrators to become the predators that they end up being, you know, but then we also are shaping people to also become victims in ways by acting as though we're not even going to focus on perpetrators. We're just going to focus on how you're supposed to be preventing this in some way, shape or form. But we're also going to tell you, like, if it looks like this, if it's someone that, you know, if you were drinking, if you were using substances, if you're wearing certain clothes, it doesn't actually count. You have to prevent something, but this is not it. And that by and large is actually how it occurs. And it made me think because I went to college in the early 2000s too. I think the conversation we had around sexual assault was when they issued us our rape whistle. Wow. I don't know if your school gave you one. It was like, here's your student manual. Here's a planner. Here's like some college like pride stuff. And here's a rape whistle. Only blow it if you're actually being raped. That was it. And part of me was just like, are people running around just like freely blowing the rape whistle? And someone's running and they're just like, oh, sorry. I was just having fun making noise. Like, That doesn't often happen, but it already set the precedent as a victim or as a survivor, like we have to evaluate, does this meet criteria for warranting getting help? without actually even knowing what that that criteria was. And my college had a rape crisis center and counselors and stuff that we heard existed, you know, and sometimes they would speak, but it also was such a topic of like, Ooh, like it's sensitive. We don't talk about that. You know, it's such a deep, dark thing that I think actually really didn't serve anyone because it felt like it was something that was rare and it just isolated everybody who would need those services. I think about coming back to how we can move away from blaming you or blaming survivors for not accessing support they didn't know that they needed and they didn't know was available, or it might not have even been available, that we had communities that were supposed to show up for you there in so many different ways that didn't.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Our campus had, it was called just the Women's Center. I believe a lot of resources that now exist on college campuses have a much more identifiable name as to what type of services that they provide. But the Women's Center to me at the time, what was always described as somewhere that you went if you needed to talk about birth control or having sex or maybe there were some support groups but there was never topics about sexual assault or stalking or harassment things like that i was even in a sorority at the time and we never had speakers that came and spoke to us about these hard topics i mean what a loss for the organization at that time to not have those resources for for a large group of women on campus but i think things are starting to change which gives me a lot of hope but back to the self blame i think i have come a long long way where i don't i don't blame myself anymore for what has happened to me because what happened to me was not my fault i mean it had nothing to do with what i was wearing that night or that i was naive or that i looked a certain way or you know i was a lightweight it, it had everything to do with the guy i was dating and that he was just a bad dude and that he was a predator. And so, so that's on him. and it's you no, know, it's not it's not on me anymore,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Looking at your path to recovery sounds like after you were hospitalized, like how did how did things go from there?
0: So after I was hospitalized, I still had a lot of mental health issues. So my parents tried to take me to therapy. It was not a successful stint in therapy for a number of reasons. One of the biggest reasons is, I am a firm believer that therapy works for people if you want it to work. If you are resistant to it and don't wanna change or don't wanna accept the things that have happened to you in your life, then I, I don't think it's it's gonna work. I don't know if you have a different perspective because I know you're a psychiatrist, but that's, my, but that's my take on it. And I was in my early 20s and I was just not in a place where I was ready to accept the things that had happened to me. And at the same time, I also went with my mom, which I know that sounds really strange. And I was over the age of 18. So I could have legally gone by myself. But for some reason, I just, at that time, I felt like, I don't know, I needed her there. But it really was a hindrance, because I wasn't able to truthfully speak my story and my truth, because I had this other individual in my life. So that was definitely a challenge. But as far as The mental health issues that I struggle with, they were just a lot of PTSD. So I'd have a lot of nightmares and flashbacks. I had a lot of dating challenges because I felt like this was a part of my story. And when I began dating a guy and if we wanted to have a conversation around intimacy and what that would look like if we were to have a serious relationship, I felt like I always needed to preface it. You know, I have gone through trauma and this is part of who I am. And the relationships always quickly ended after that, except when I met my husband, who is just a total gem. I will say that. So it definitely affected that part of my life. It affected my work ethic. I've always considered myself a really hardworking, very determined person. And I just I just had a really hard time staying focused at work. And I would say that probably carried on probably 10 years post the attack. I was well into my late twenties at that point. And then I would also say a lot of depression and anxiety on top of that racing thoughts, you know, like thoughts I couldn't get out of my head that were just totally irrational. If I told you some of them, you'd be like, that's nuts, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but totally makes sense for what I've walked through. So those are some of the things that transpired post being hospitalized.
1: Yeah. And so things are in a very different place now. It seems like, you know, you're doing really well now. How did you get to this place that you are now?
0: So, you know, I honestly think I'm a firm believer that it just takes one person in somebody's life to make a dramatic difference. And for me, that was meeting my husband. There's just something about his spirit that is so calming and so accepting and so reassuring. I mean, it even brings tears to my eyes right now, just thinking about him because I was in a place in my life that I didn't know that I needed somebody like him. I met him online through eHarmony. Thanks, eHarmony. (laughs) Um, And he, I don't know, something about his spirit where I just was able to share the entirety of who I was. And because for the first time in my life, I was able to freely do that without judgment or any preconceived notion, I became this free person. And I I became more accepting of what happened to me. And I got linked up with a great therapist who I still see. I've seen her for now, I think, I believe about five years now. I also want to share this story. So I used to work for the Walt Disney Company. I filled with lots of pixie dust while working there. So I had had thoughts after I met my husband. I'd had thoughts for a while that I wanted to make this transition from working in the corporate world of this wonderful company into the mental health sector and helping survivors of trauma. Because to me, that was the reason what had happened to me is because I wanted to be able to use my voice in the community. I had this sliding doors moment where I had a girl that worked for me that just randomly one day came into my office and told me that she'd been sexually assaulted and that she was wanting to take her life that day. And I sat with her in this conference room. I'm not I'm not kidding, for like four or five hours. And I talked her down and I got her into a really, really good place where she became compliant and she went with the local police department and she was admitted to a psychiatric ward for a few days. And then after that, I kind of helped her just kind of through her journey, get the proper help. And because of this moment, I had this thought of like, okay, I need to be doing this for the rest of my life like this is my life's purpose this is why what happened to me happened and so a combination of meeting my husband and then this feeling of deep inner purpose through this situation kind of helped guide me into a more healthy place of life like i said I, I met my therapist i started going to emdr therapy which we can talk about that more later but it's awesome type of therapy and i started doing that what honestly really really helped me the most is being vulnerable, being vulnerable out in the community, sharing my story. I became involved with a wonderful organization in Los Angeles called Peace Over Violence who provides education and resources to various populations in the Los Angeles community that have been victims of sexual and domestic violence. I was on their speaker's bureau. I was an advocate. I spent a lot of time in the community, a lot of time dedicating myself to this cause. So I think accumulation of all those different factors has helped me get to a more healthier place and a true acceptance of who I am and that it's okay what has happened to me because I'm okay.
1: And I think, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind and, you know, this may be super therapist-y of me, and this comes up for me when I hear people's stories, you know, especially women have a tendency to do this where they're like all these wonderful opportunities, came my way for transformation and therefore healing happened. And I think that what oftentimes gets missed, and this is something that you're describing, and we're going to talk more about it later too, is that there's also qualities about you that made it so that like when your husband showed up in your life, which BTW, love a recovery love story, but that like when he showed up into your life, that you were able to be mindful and present to that and allow the dynamic between the two of you to open you up and to be more yourself. And the part of you that showed up for that coworker of yours that stayed with her and and helped her through that moment, also connected with, this feels important. I need to pay attention to what's happening to me right now in this moment of being of service to this person and choosing to follow that. You know, it's important to highlight that it's so easy for us to not take credit for our role that we played in our recovery. And there's so much that's there. And for me personally, that's one of the things that I had to really teach myself to do consciously was to follow those, like whether they're universal, emotional, spiritual breadcrumbs that happen of like recognizing that feeling of like, oh, this actually feels really good and important and significant. I can do something about that. I can continue on that path. That wasn't something that came naturally to me for a number of reasons because I had a tendency to prioritize all the shoulds of like, this is how life should look. This is how I should be doing things. This is how, I should engage in the world. This is what life is supposed to look like versus what I want or what feels good or feels right. And I had a tendency to ignore some of those important connecting moments that are things like that feeling of deep connection or meaning that you got from that moment with the woman at work and helping her and showing up for her and that leading to a pretty significant pivot. And those are some of the qualities to really look at and, and be able to recognize and even like take some pride in, because that's kind of like what you're saying that's part of who you are was that was your side of the transaction with this dynamic space of trauma that happened where the qualities around you that you were going to pursue these things. It kind of is a little bit of like a I don't know, like an assertive or powerful fighter type of spirit of like, I'm going to go where the light is showing me to go, where this feeling is showing me to go.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's interesting. I was listening to a podcast by Oprah a couple of years ago and I can't, I think she was talking to Amy Purdy. I don't know if you know who that is, but she is a double amputee and has just a really inspiring story. But the gist of their conversation was about how people that come from trauma go on to do these amazing and courageous things But it's so hard to pinpoint like what it is exactly about specific personality traits that allow that person to do that. And ever since I listened to that podcast, it's something that I think about often and ties into what you were just saying about giving yourself credit and about recognizing those qualities that allowed you to make those pivotal changes in your life. I I think about that often as, okay, what is it about my personality that made me fight so hard to come out on the other side because there are a lot of people who have gone through just what I have or worse who have let it eat them alive and they either become perpetrators themselves or they cause harm to family members or 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 just go down this really, really dark path of drugs. And it's it's so hard to pinpoint like a specific characteristic about my personality that has allowed me to pivot my life but i'm just really grateful that i was i was able to pull myself out of that dark place
1: yeah i think that's you know for many of us it's kind of it's like part of the awe and wonder of of life and recovery is i know for some people i know for me sometimes this happens too it's a little bit of survivors guilt of i don't know i i think intellectually i understand there's you know there's certain things about me and then there's also certain things that were just about the environment, you know, whether that was like privilege that was afforded to me and access to resources that I had that led to the scales tipped in my favor of being able to recover more effectively and other folks not having access, you know, the way that I truly believe everyone should have to those resources that can help, you know, and how there's so many dominoes that line up to set us up for, survival and recovery from trauma or for not surviving the trauma. There's so many people, like you said, that whether that path is they become reactive and they become harmful themselves or you know they suffer something like substance abuse, addiction, or suicide, this is a life-threatening illness. PTSD is a life-threatening injury. And we often don't think of mental health issues as life-threatening the way that we think of like cancer being life-threatening, even though the science shows us that it is, you know, we tend to still, whether explicitly or implicitly still assume a lot of personal responsibility around mental health and don't understand how the brain really functions. For example, for me, like when I was growing up, I definitely thought suicide is never something that I would ever consider you know, that this is not something I could imagine feeling or wanting. And part of that was because of wanting to be alive or having so many plans. I'm a Virgo. So I definitely plan a lot. And I'm like, this is how my life is going to look. And suicide is just not in that plan. And couldn't imagine this happening to me, you know, in the sense that it felt like it would have been a complete shift in my mind. And then I was assaulted and suffered trauma. And all of a sudden my brain is working in a completely different way. That feels totally out of what I, I understand myself to be. And suicidality came up and it's very common for survivors. And so I think there's also a lot around how our communities support us and understand some of these things that can also help during those moments of when we have communities that understand mental health issues and offer more support and more access to resources, or even early, early on in life, you know, whether that's community-based, family-based services as well, we set people up for being able to be more resilient and recover better, you know, and to survive things like suicidality, you know, or other things that come up around this. Obviously, I can go off on so many things for so long about this, and we're getting close to the end of our time. And I know we're going to talk again about resiliency and talk about this a little bit more, How, you know, with some of what we know and some of what we don't know, what we can do to really support and enhance resiliency in folks and ourselves. But for now, do you have words of support for survivors listening to this or words of wisdom to close things up?
0: Sure. I would just say that you are stronger than you think you are and that the human spirit is so much more resilient than often given credit. And going back to what I shared at the beginning about starting the platform called Good, Strong, Brave, those three words are really, really important to me. And it's a mantra that I've come up with, which is I am good enough, I'm strong enough, and I am brave enough. I journal about those every day. It's something that I look in the mirror and I say those things to myself and it has really become a part of who I am. And I say that to the listeners as well, is that you are good enough. You are strong enough and you are brave enough to continue on your path and your journey in life and to always look for the good and just believe in yourself.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, Know that Rain is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at Rain at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.